God has formed us with a deep-seated desire to be in relationship with other people, to be a part of a family. And you didn't have a choice about your physical family. Some of you are thinking, shoot, I wish I had a choice. But if you're going to be a fully devoted follower of Christ, you don't have a choice about whether you're going to participate in your spiritual family either. Paul was speaking to the Romans and he said this in Romans 12:5. Christ makes us one body and individuals who are connected to each other. I think this is on your listening guide. Circle that word connected. This is the big thing that we're talking about. And by the way, today when we leave, there's a uh, memory verse card, memory verse for the week. And if you would like that, we'll have some guys at the door passing those out. Um, just something you can put on the mirror or something that you can go through this week and, and memorize that verse. Uh, if you are a believer, you are connected with other believers in this room. Yes, we're connected with other believers around the world, but specifically we're supposed to be connected in a very real, very powerful way with people in the local church. Most of the time in the New Testament when they talk about the church or the word church is mentioned, it's talking about a local body of believers where people know each other and, and they are fully known by others. Now, the problem is it's easy to get disconnected in relationships, isn't it? It's easy to get disconnected from our spouse. It's easy to get disconnected from our children. It's easy to get disconnected from God. So what I want to do is I want to do a little connection test. You have your uh, registration cards. Turn those over and write very small, very small, so you'll have room to do some other stuff. I'm going to ask you three questions. Number one, you're going to put down one, two, three, and then beside it, there's going to be a multiple choice answer. You just write down A, B, C, D, or whatever, the ones that apply to you. Here's question number one. When it comes to connecting with others, you're going to write down all these that apply. A, sometimes I seem to have enough friends and other times I feel lonely. That's you. Put letter A. B, I have lots of friends, but we don't get very deep. C, I have only a few friends, but our relationships are very rich. D, I have to really work at making friends. E, I've tried many times to have meaningful friendships, but it never works out. And F, I've never had what you would call a best friend. Number two, how is your connection or your friendship with God these days? A, I connect with God every day. B, sometimes I connect with God, but not always. C, I don't really connect with God or even think much about God. And just be honest, nobody's going to knock on your door and say, how dare you answer this? Just be real. And I'm always amazed at how honest you folks are. That helps me know where we are and what I need to do in the future, the teachings, things like that. Uh, that was C, right? D, I'm not very comfortable thinking about God as my, be- as my friend. All right? Number three, when it comes to connecting with others, how would you describe your attitude, yourself, right now? A, I have lots of energy and desire to connect with others. In other words, I'm excited about connecting with others. That's letter A. Woohoo, I just can't wait. B, I want to connect with others, but sometimes relationships drain me. C, I'm not sure I'm up for any relationship drama right now. And D, I'm in the pit relationally. Some of you laughed at C, but not at D. D got maybe too close to home. Now, I want to know, how many of you signed up for small groups? I'm just putting you on the spot. If you check on your little card today, I'll I'll get you signed up because we start next Sunday night. We have a big kickoff. We're going to have so much fun. Next Sunday night is just about fun, just about getting to know your people. And it's going to be all new people in your small group. So... Five o'clock next Sunday night, child care is provided. The kids are going to have a big pizza party back in the back, and we're going to have a party in here. It's going to be a good time. But here's what I want to tell you. I want you to let, let you in on a little secret. If you get into small group, there will be differences of opinion. If you get into small group, there will be 
conflicts. So who wants to sign up now? Conflict happens and you can be in on it. Well, here's the reason I tell you that. I'm, I'm telling you this because the only people who never disagree on anything are dead people. So if you get into a small group and it's just wonderful bliss, it is like heaven on earth. It means either your small group is not being honest or you're all dead. Those are the only two options. If you're not having disagreements and conflicts, you are going to have disagreements and conflicts. And small groups are these little bitty laboratories that God designed to train you how to have healthy relationships. And the things you're going to learn in small groups on Sunday nights, you can apply anywhere you have relationships. At home, marriages with children, with other relatives that you just can't stand to see at the holidays. We're going to teach you how to have healthy relationships. And you can use these at work, but you've got to get involved. How many of you have been taught, you had a class in, in high school or in college, Healthy Relationships 101? Let me see your hand. Did you really? Wow. But 1%. Less than 1%. The rest of you, what's your problem? You weren't taught. Are our churches known as places where people just flock when they don't know how to relate to others, when their worlds are falling apart? Do they come to church to learn how to have healthy relationships? No. No, we're going to change that over the next several weeks. So today we're going to talk about what destroys relationships and what builds relationships. Every relationship problem can be boiled down to one of four negative attitudes or what I'm going to call relational germs that get in and attack your relationships. And uh, these germs are the enemy of connection. They're the enemy of you Finding, uh, meeting a deepest need, which is your need to connect with others, because God wired you that way. So the first relational germ, this is actually the biggest one, is selfishness. Selfishness. It's the number, number one enemy of connection between people. It's the number one cause of conflicts. It's the number, number one cause of arguments. It's the number one cause of divorce. And it's even the number one cause of war. A dictator looks at another country and says, I want that. He doesn't have it, so he goes and gets it, and it causes war. And so this actually comes out of the New Testament. James, the half-brother of Jesus, in in chapter 4, verse 1, says this. Do you know where your fights and arguments come from? They come from the selfish desires that war within you. You want things, but do not have them. And he goes on to say, so you go to war. You fight because you don't have things. So my selfishness, your selfishness, comes from this deep-seated desire to have something that we do not have. Now, if you're married... And you can remember this long ago. Um, Ladies, do you remember when you were dating? Did he work hard at being unselfish? Most at first. Yes, at first. That's the key. And ladies, did you like it when he was unselfish? Now, some of you now, honestly, we got to be honest today. Some of you dated jerks and married jerks. Now, do not volunteer that information right now. If you married a jerk, okay? some of you. The signs were there, you just didn't see them. But, but most of us, when we're in the dating relationship, we go out of our way in order to be unselfish, to meet the needs of the other one, to make them happy. The problem is we're so much better at starting relationships than we are at maintaining relationships. We don't put near the energy into maintaining relationships as we do in starting them, right? One guy I, I read about said, in the first year of my marriage, my wife used to bring me my slippers and the dog would come barking. Now my dog brings me slippers and what happened? They stopped maintaining the relationship. 
If there were more courting in marriage, there'd be fewer marriages in court. And by the way, isn't it interesting that folks go to, Tony Evans said this, uh, black pastor in, in Dallas, he said, people go to the church house to get married. They go to the courthouse to get divorced. He said, could that be some of the problems we're having in our churches nowadays is we, we don't go back to God? Ouch. Okay. Have you ever heard people say, if there is a God, then why is there evil in the world? Heard that? That's an easy one for me. That's such an easy question to answer. I mean, if you're going to use a smokescreen for why you don't follow God or why you don't believe in God, at least come up with a better smokescreen. Because this selfish, this evil in the world comes from selfishness. We're selfish pigs. That's why there's evil in the world. I don't have any problem explaining evil in the world. A deeper question is, why is there anything good in this world? And I can give you the answer to that. It's God. Without God, there would be no good in the world. So come up with a better question if that's your smokescreen about why you're not going to follow God. And by the way, there is a time, and this is talked about in Revelation, the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. There's a time when the Bible says it would be better for people not to have been born than to live during this time. It's what the Bible calls the Great Tribulation, when God will remove His hand from this world and all selfishness and hell will break loose. People will wish they'd never been born. It's easy to explain evil in this world. Selfishness is natural. You don't have to teach a child to be selfish, do you? Mine. And that's what some of y'all say too. In marriage, that's, that's part of the problem. Relationships cannot be built on selfishness. Neither can NBA championships. Who, who won the NBA championship this, la- this last year? Oh yeah, it was Dallas. Dallas, right. Who did they beat in, in one of the rounds? Some team from the West Coast. What, who was that? Los Angeles, Kobe. Kobe, right? Uh, which team did they say was more unselfish in that, in that series? Los Angeles and, and Dallas. I'm helping you out, Dallas. And then they beat somebody in the finals. Who was that? Oh, yeah, that, that team from Miami. And I use the term team very loosely when I'm talking about those guys from Miami. And, and for months afterwards... They talked about, the the experts would analyze how Dallas won. Because they were saying Dallas wasn't the more talented team. That other team was much more talented. But then they said, but Dallas was a team. They were connected, they were unselfish, and it allowed them to win this championship. Um, So that's the opposite, then, of selfishness is selflessness. So what, what tears down a relationship? Selfishness. What builds it up is selflessness. Some of you have seen this video I'm going to show, but I want you to watch the selflessness of this dad towards his handicapped son. Together has power. And I love that line... Um, Rick couldn't run without his dad. Dick wouldn't run without his son. And so the basic premise is do not run alone. And in Philippians chapter 2, we're told this. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others. Dad, Dick, in this video, took an interest in his son, and it caused him to change the way he lived. So here's what I want you to do. Here's an assignment. I want you to find somebody in your world and I want you to take an interest in them. I want you to act selflessly towards them. Because I guarantee you, 
if you act selflessly towards them, it will change them because they're going to have to relate how they're going to have to change how they relate to you because you've become a different person. You want a new spouse, ladies? You act selflessly towards your spouse. He'll have to change to relate to you in a new way. Men, you want a new spouse? Then you uh, act selflessly towards him. You want a new friend? You want a new boss? Whoever it is, you act selflessly towards them and you watch what God will begin to do in and through you. God's favorite place to teach you selflessness is in your physical family, which doesn't always work well. And so God has provided a spiritual family, small groups to help you learn how to act selflessly. And some of you are going to say, well, I don't have a small group. Well, guess what? You don't know how to act selflessly if you're not getting involved in what God has provided for you. It's so easy to be selfless in this crowd. I mean, I'm hot up here because these lights are hot, but most of y'all are probably very comfortable out there. And very few people are asking anything from you right now except to stay in your seat. Don't cross the crack right there. Do not come over here. You know, that's an unspoken request in most cases. But nobody's asking anything of you here. So it's real easy to be selfless in this crowd. But you're going to have to learn selflessness in small groups if you want to be the person that God wanted for you. Best thing I ever did was when I graduated from high school, I went to Baylor University and I lived in a dorm for a year and I lived in a little bitty cubicle thing with two dudes I had never seen before in my life. My siblings were much older than me, so I had a room to myself for many years. I had the house to myself for many years with mom and dad. Mom and dad did not force me to relate uh, the way I should have with others. And so I was a very selfish kid when I went to college. Man, I learned selfishness stinks and, and you have to work together with others. And then we, I was on this hall with guys and we had four shower heads for like a hundred dudes. You have to kind of learn how to figure things out, you know, and, and share things. And that was one of the best things that ever happened to me. Let me give you some practical ways that you can learn selflessness in a small group. Number one is show up. <laughs> You're not always going to feel like going to small group. Small group comes at five o'clock on Sunday afternoons. There's all kinds of things going on. One of which is my nap. At five o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, if my nap is going well, I don't always feel like getting up and coming and hanging out with you, right? But when I do, I'm putting your needs ahead of my own needs and stuff happens in the group and you grow just a little bit when you put someone else ahead of your own needs, except new people in the group. We will not allow clicks at New Life. Not going to happen. If your group becomes a click, we will bust you up. We will bust you up soon. We'll bust you up bad. Because it is not your group. I don't want people in my group. Well, it's not your group. It's God's group. This is not your church. This is God's church. And he gets to call the shots. And he says he's interested in other people coming. So we've always got to practice that empty chair thing. We have an empty chair to remind us that there's always room for somebody else in our group. Listen to the people in your group. We talked about this last week uh, when we talked about pay attention. When you listen, you're giving away your most valuable asset. You're giving away your time. You can't make any more time. You can always make more money, but you can't make any more time. So you're giving your life away when you listen. Another thing is open your home. What we're going to do is we're going to meet on Sunday nights, but we're going to try once a month to meet in homes. And we're going to, we'll figure that out next week, whether it's going to be the first Saturday or the second Saturday, whatever it is. We're going to designate that time once a month for small groups to meet in homes. Open up your home. Something happens when you have people come into your home and you sit around and you just fellowship. And we're just going to uh, have a good time on those Saturday nights, maybe pray together um, for anything that's going on in our lives. But something happens when you have people in your home. And when people come to your home, don't hide the good stuff. If you've got real Oreos, don't put them at the back and, and don't give, you know, great value Oreos. Get the good stuff. 
Share the good stuff. That's how you act selflessly. And when you do that, you grow just a little bit. I want you to look at Galatians 6, 7. It says, the person who plants selfishness ignores the needs of others, ignoring God. You ignore the needs of others, you ignore God. And they harvest a crop of weeds. All they have to show for his life is weeds. But the one who plants in response to God, letting God's spirit do the growth work in him, harvests a crop of real life, eternal life. You want real life. The Bible is very clear. It says to live it God's way, which is to look out for others. And this whole thing, this is the universe runs on this principle of sowing and reaping. Whatever you sow, you're going to get out. So if you plant criticism, people are going to be what of you? Critical. If you plant kindness, most of the time, people are going to be what towards you? Kind. If you plant jealousy and envy, people will be what towards you? Jealous and envious. Now, not everyone plays by the rules, do they? Some people are punks. They came out the womb as punks. They will go into the grave as punks and they don't play by the rules. What do you do if you got a punk in your life? It's right there. It says, but the one who plants in response to God. This isn't easy to do. In fact, it's not natural. It's supernatural. And the only way you do this is with God's Holy Spirit living in you. When you can have something happen in your life and you respond to that person as if you are seeing God, that's supernatural and it will rock your world and it will rock their world. You try it. In, in Proverbs, it says a kind word, a, a, a harsh word stirs up anger, but a kind word uh, turns away wrath. Try it sometime when somebody's just out of control. Try being calm. Trying responding to them as if you would to God and watch what happens. God does supernatural stuff when we do that. There's a second relational germ that we got to look at today, and it's pride. Proverbs 13.10 says, pride leads to arguments. Let me just give you a rundown of where pride shows up and see if these are in your life. If you're critical of others, you have a pride problem. If you're judgmental, you have a pride problem. If you're overly competitive... You have a pride problem. If you're always comparing husbands, children, salaries, houses, cars, motorcycles, you have a pride problem. If you can't admit you were wrong, you have a pride problem. And by the way, don't ever go to someone and say, well, if I may have offended you, I'm sorry. Weak politicians do that. Because if you say, well, if I may have offended you, that puts the... the, the bad stuff on you. That means you're too weak, you're too sensitive, and you got offended, and it's not my fault. That's trash right there. If you want to do a God-honoring, God-filled apology, you walk up to someone and you say, I did this, I was wrong. And then you say, will you forgive me? You don't say, please forgive me. You say, will you? You put it all in their court And you say, I was wrong. You don't go in and you don't say, well, I was wrong, but you did this and that's how I responded. That's why. That puts it on them again. You say, and I'm telling you, you do this and you watch what God does in your relationships. You say to them, I was wrong for this. It hurt me. Will you forgive me? And you leave it to them. Most of the time, people respond very well to that. I've done that with family members. I've done that with business people. When I have been wrong, I've gone back and said, God is just messing me up and I have to do this. Will you forgive me? It will it will do wonders for your relationships. Look what it says in Proverbs 16, 18. First pride, then the crash. The bigger the ego, the harder the fall. If you've recently had a big fall, it's shown everybody how big your ego is. 
And by the way, don't don't apologize through texts or emails. That's weak. That's childish. You go face to face. That's what grown-ups do. It's what people in the in the family of God are supposed to do. We're supposed to go to someone face to face, and it's how we prove that we're followers of Christ. We value them enough to come to them and say, I was wrong. What's the opposite of pride? Well, it's it's where you're going when you when you admit this stuff. It's humility. The antidote to the relational worm pride is humility. First Peter 3 8 says, All of you should be in agreement, understanding each other, loving each other as family, be kind and humble. Can you imagine if our small groups were known for this, that we loved each other closer than physical families do? Do you think people would want to be a part of that? I said this last week, people aren't looking for friendly churches, they're looking for friends. They're looking for people to do life with. And the basic law of relationships is that I become like people that I hang out with. If you spend time with arrogant donkey's rears, what does that make you? Okay, y'all are pretty quick. If you spend time with grumpy people, what does that make you? If you spend time with folks who hate, hate your marriage and hate their marriage, what does that do to you? Before long, those attitudes begin to creep into your marriage relationship. But if you hang out with people who are sold out to Jesus Christ and who want to grow as Christ followers, you begin to be drawn into that and your heart begins to be changed and you begin to look more like Christ, which improves every relationship that you have. Your attitude starts to look like Christ when you hang out with the right people. And that's the whole point. And in addition to small groups... You need a spiritual partner, one or two people that you meet with on a regular basis. We call them accountability partners. That somebody that knows you very well, somebody that can say to you, hey, how have you been doing this week? And I've done this many times, many different men through the years. I don't have anybody right now, so I'm looking for spiritual partners. But it can only be one or two. (laughs) Otherwise, it becomes a small group. I am going to start a men's study group on Wednesday nights later in the fall, and I'll let you know more about that. But I'm talking about spiritual partners where sometimes we read books together, sometimes we, we read the Scripture, but what we do is we ask each other, how's your marriage going? We ask questions like, have you looked at anything on the Internet this week that would, would not honor Christ or your wife? We ask stuff, have you looked at a woman lustfully? We ask some pretty tough questions, and then one of those last questions is, have you just lied to me? When I was in Arlington, um, had some guys, and we would meet in this one dude's house. He had a great house. And we would get together, and, and one time this man looked across at me, and he said, uh, he goes, man, I wanted, to, I wanted to look at some pornography this week. And he said, the only reason I didn't is because you guys were going to be here on Monday night and ask me if I looked at it. He said, I love my wife. He had a beautiful little girl. And he said, I love my daughter. He said, but I'm such a weak fool that that the only thing that kept me from it was two men who were going to look me in the eye and say, did you look at something? It's power. There's power in together. Third relational worm is insecurity. Insecurity destroys relationships. I love the way the message says this in Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of human opinion disables You ever been disabled trying to please someone? Trying to get someone to approve of you, whether that's a parent or whether that's a spouse or or somebody you're just trying to get their attention. When I'm afraid you won't like me, it causes me to do weird stuff to try to impress you. Try to manipulate you or control you. And by the way, if you ever hear someone say, I hate you, 
That's an attempt by an insecure person to manipulate you or control you in some way. Insecurity is really fear. What we are is afraid that someone, that if someone finds out what I'm really like on the inside, they won't like me. When we are afraid, we hide our true selves, and that destroys intimacy. In fact, this is man's oldest fear. In the Garden of Eden, after uh, Adam, Adam and Eve sinned and they realized they were naked, look what Adam says in Genesis 3.10. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Now, this is kind of interesting because in our day and age, people aren't afraid of nakedness anymore. People flaunt their bodies. We went to Hurricane Harbor on, on Thursday. Oh, dear Lord, cover stuff up. Um, People aren't afraid of showing their bodies. But here's what I've learned. Many people that are not afraid of physical nakedness are scared to death of emotional nakedness. In fact, I think it's a smokescreen. I think they want you to look at the body and think their bodies are great and not notice what's on the inside. They're scared people on the inside. They're manipulative people on the inside. They're insecure people on the inside. And they don't want anybody to know what they're really like. You see, fear and insecurity make us dishonest. It makes us lie. We put up walls hoping no one will see us. And you miss one of the reasons God put you on the planet. And that's to be known and to, to fully know others. Everyone deserves to be known and to know someone else fully. Everyone deserves that, whether you're married or not. Many of you felt rejected by the church in the past. And you said, I am not going there again. All I can tell you is, yes, we are human and probably some people in this church will fail you. It's not our intention, but because we're human, because we don't always walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, we sin. Everyone sins. The Pope sins. Because we're not perfect, we're going to hurt you. But we're also going to try to put it back together the way God says it. And every time I do that, by the way, that's the whole talk next week is how do you do this? How do you put it back together? Every time I walk the way God says to walk, He does amazing things. And it's not fun to go into a confrontation. It's not fun to admit you're wrong. But every time God has strengthened that relationship when I've done things the way He says to do it. Amazing. God works that way. Satan is actually afraid that if you walk God's way, you're going to experience committed love. There is something different about committed love. It is not the emotional uh, tingles that you feel. It's not the, the, the sweaty palms and the butterflies in your stomach. That's not, that's not committed love. That stuff goes away. I've known Janie 27 years, been married 20 years. I love the woman more today than I did when I married her. But honestly, I don't get the tingles anymore. When I see her, there is a deep... Um, there's a deep love that, that comes from my heart and my soul that I didn't have 20 years ago when we got married because we didn't have a clue what marriage was. We thought we knew. We read books. We went to pre-marriage counseling, and then we got married, and we're like, dude, we didn't know Jack. And we have grown to love each other through the years. Mature love can't happen until the tingles is gone. That's why, that's why we encourage you to date for a while before you get married. You need to know that person before you marry them. You need to see them in good situations. You need to see them in bad situations. Because I hear people a lot say, man, after we got married, they, can, they changed. They're not the same person anymore. There's one more relational germ that we've got to look at. And that's resentment. Job 5.2 says, anger kills the fool and jealousy slays the stupid. The Bible is the most real book on the planet. I, 
Do I need to explain this verse? Anger kills the fool and jealousy slays the stupid. It's pretty clear, right? Everybody messes up. But what we call a mess up or an indiscretion or an accident or an oversight, the Bible calls sin. God calls it what it is. We are sinners and we're going to hurt each other. And so you've got, since you're going to be hurt, you've got to choose. Am I going to become bitter or am I going to let this make me better? It's a choice only you can make. And your parents may have done horrible things to you when you were a child, but at some point you've got to grow up and and take responsibility for your own life and quit blaming them for what they did. Because everybody else in your life today is suffering from what happened to you years ago. You're stuck in the past. You may be walking around in a 35-year-old body, but you're actually stuck in a a 12-year-old emotional state. Because you're stuck when somebody hurt you and you're holding on to that and you keep digging it up over and over and over again. Let me give you some common irritations in small group. The person who is always late and then they spend 10 minutes explaining why they are late. Again. The person who talks too much. Nobody's ever had one of those in your group, have you? You've not, uh, the person that gives too much information. TMI person. They explain the root canal in, in all kinds of detail or the appendectomy or whatever it is. And then they show you scars. No, we don't want to know that stuff. The guy who texts during small group uh-huh, uh-huh, or checks the scores. How many of you have an ESPN app on your smartphone? I do, but I don't check it during small group. The person who never allows an opinion other than his. The person who jokes about everything, even your dying aunt. The guy who forgets the guacamole. He's a jerk. Now, in every group, there are some people who are a little bit off. Okay, I'm just going to tell you this. I'm trying to be real about small groups. So when you come and you go, this person's just weird. Okay, because there's one in every group. And they're what we call EGRs, extra grace required people. I'm, I'm telling you, they're there. You're going to meet them. You just go home and you pray and say, oh, God, pour out your grace on me because I need it. Now, the EGRs, they're like heavenly sandpaper. Hang on. They're like heavenly sandpaper to rub off your sharp edges. God put them there on purpose. And maybe, maybe it's for us to learn how to love. It's easy to love people that are just like us, you know, that like the same things. But God puts us around other people to, to knock off our rough edges. And some of you are thinking about your small group right now. You've got names coming up. And if you can't think of who that person is, guess what? You're it. If you're going, everybody's normal in my group, then you are, you're off. I'm sorry. I just tried to be real today. Well, okay. The antidote to this relational worm, this, this resentment thing is forgiveness. We talk about this all the time. Colossians 3.13 says, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgives you, so you must forgive others. It's not a suggestion to forgive others. You must. Um, I saw something on Facebook a while back about, you know, why is it so hard to forgive? And it's just hard. I wish it were easy to forgive. Well, if it were easy to forgive, Jesus would never have to have died on the cross. That's how much forgiveness costs. Let me explain what forgiveness is not. It's not making excuses for the other person that hurt you. They hurt you. It was real. 
And, and we admit that. Forgiveness is not minimizing the hurt. It hurt. <laughs> you know, it hurt. So don't pretend it didn't. Forgiveness is not justifying it and saying, oh, it's no big deal. It was a big deal because it hurt you. Forgiveness is not saying it wasn't wrong. It was wrong. So what is forgiveness? Here it is. Forgiveness is letting go of the pain and letting go of my right to get even. I let go of the pain instead of just pulling it back up over and over and over again. I let go of the pain and I let go of my right to get even. Why would somebody do that? Because you're hurting yourself. It, you might, there was a video. I wish I could find this. I looked for it. There's a video years ago where this guy's standing there and he's got a hammer. And he's going, this joint won't hurt me. And then he just knocks himself in the knee with a hammer. He's like, these booze won't hurt me. And he knocks himself in the other knee with a hammer. And he's just beating himself up. And he's going, see, it's not hurting me. That's the person who does not forgive. You are beating yourself up, pretending it's not hurting you. And it's destroying your life. And you're living in misery and, and your misery stinks. It smells bad to everybody in your family. It smells bad to your friends. It smells bad to your co-workers. Because it's a festering sore that you won't let go of. Some of you are still allowing people from your past to hurt you. and pl- Quite honestly, that's dumb. They can't hurt you anymore unless you hold on to it. So, so let's not be dumb. The past is the past. Forgiveness is the only way to get on with your life. They don't deserve it, but neither did you when Jesus was hanging on the cross. Resentment turns your heart into this desert, this wasteland, emotionally. You don't have anything to give anybody else. Your boyfriend, your husband, your girlfriend, your spouse, your your children, your parents, you don't have anything to give because your heart is a desert. Well, God brought you here today to tell you this verse. He's got some good news. It's from Isaiah 43. Forget what happened before and do not think about the past. I'm going to do something new in your life and I will make rivers on a dry land. I'm going to turn that desert into an oasis. God says he wants to restore your life, but you've got to let him do that. God's promise is he will restore your shriveled up soul if you forgive. Now, you may have had some relational disasters in your life, and so I just say, welcome to the human race. We've all got relational disasters in our past. We've got to choose what we're going to do with them, and God says you can have a new start today. So I want you to bow your heads for just a moment. And I'm going to ask you some questions. And then we're going to pray and ask God to do some restoring of our souls. My first question is, who do you need to ask forgiveness from you have offended somebody who do you need to go to and say will you forgive me ask God to show you that person question number two who are you hiding your wants and needs from there's somebody in your world right now that you're pretending you've got it all together and you're really not being honest with them. Who are you hiding from? Question three. Who you been judging or critical of? And God just nailed me this week when I was studying for this message. And I caught myself right as I was about to say something. I thought, wow, that's judgmental. That means 
I'm filled with pride right now. And then the last question is, who do you need to offer forgiveness to? Some of you need to pray this prayer with me. And actually, if you all want to pray it, you pray it silently as I pray it out loud. Dear Jesus, you've seen every relationship I've ever had. The good, the bad, and the ugly. You know how selfishness and pride and insecurity and resentment messes them up. I admit I need your help, Jesus, in my life and in my relationships. As much as I understand, I ask you, Jesus, to come into my life and live through me and put your love in my heart. I want the fresh start that you offer. So here's my life. Do with it as you choose. Father, would you restore some dry and withered up souls today? Give them a drink of the living water that will never be quenched. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.